Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I am Mike Nasnik. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Last week, we spoke with uh, Justin Peters, author of The Idealists, about the first half of that book, uh, which was all about kind of the history of copyright law in the U.S. and some of the people and organizations who were deeply involved in that. It was a, a fun conversation. Um, despite my intro and the book being mostly about Aaron Swartz, uh, we didn't really touch very much on, on Swartz at all, uh, because so much of the book is really, I think, providing the context for that world in which Aaron lived um, and that many of us live in as well. Um, you know, that history of copyright law, who shaped it and, and how, which was really quite fascinating. Um, and certainly also how the same sorts of debates and talking points and ideas keep coming up again and again and again and again and again. Um, if for some reason you haven't yet listened to that episode, um, you probably should do so now before listening to this one. Uh, this week, Justin is back again, as mentioned, uh, but it will be different in that I think we're going to focus much more on uh, Aaron Swartz himself. Um, and, you know, as such, I think it can probably stand alone if you haven't listened to last week's, but I still think that the context provided by what we discussed last week um, does such a good job of, of putting it all into perspective uh, regarding Aaron's life and ambitions. Um, so now I, I want to focus on Swartz. I did want to get to one other non-Aaron uh, Swartz thing in the book, uh, which we didn't cover last week, which was that you talked about uh, Michael Hart and Project Gutenberg, yeah. um, which was really interesting to me also in that I, I actually didn't know that much about that project either, which is sort of a, a predecessor to some of the stuff that Swartz worked on. So do you want to just give a little overview there? Yeah, um, and thanks for bringing this up because I love this part of the book. Um, <laughs> Mike Hart was the um, he, he invented the ebook basically in 1971 yeah. as a student at the University of Illinois. Um, he uh, input the uh, Declaration of Independence into a Xerox Sigma five uh, mainframe computer <laughs> and then basically sent it out across the uh, campus network. Um, and for the next 40 years of his life, until he died in 2011, that was basically his, um, um, what he lived for, right? right? Yeah, to sort of um, put public domain texts online and distribute them to the world uh, for free. And uh, for the first sort of 17 years that he was doing that, um, he worked in complete isolation because nobody really thought there was any um, there would be any use for putting books online. Why would you read a book on a computer if you could right. read it in a book, right? Uh, <laughs> but like eventually, when sort of like the personal computer becomes more popular and the World Wide Web launches, um, there starts to become a market for this product that Hart has been laying the groundwork for for. Um, low these many years. So um, eventually his uh, his hobby becomes what is now Project Gutenberg, you know, the first uh, and perhaps still like most pure attempt to create a digital 
library. Um, the, by the time he died in 2011, there were 37,000 public domain texts that had been painstakingly typed in sort of like plain text, you know, by hand and uploaded to um, this system. I don't know what the number of texts is now. It's probably much higher than that. But in, in the book, I basically just go through and sort of tell uh, Hart's story and his sort of ambition of changing the world through um, making information more accessible to its inhabitants. And I sort of dovetail Hart's story with the story of uh, Congress and the wider world discovering the Internet and its commercial potential and basically trying to pass laws that made it much, much, much harder for people like Hart to uh, do their job. I'm speaking specifically about the uh, Copyright Term Extension Act, yeah. you know, the, the Sonny Bono law, which uh, Hart sort of spoke out against um, and uh, basically which when it passed, it took all of these books that would have been falling into the public domain. It would have been, you know, fair game for Project Gutenberg and, you know, um, Eric Eldred and all these other sort of like people and said, whoa, sorry guys, wait for 20 years. Um, and um, basically... Um, that's sort of how I bring uh, Aaron back into the book. And I always envision, you know, people who buy this book see his face like on the cover. When they get around to page 120, they're like, finally, Jesus <laughs> Christ, guy. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I bring Aaron back into the book at the steps of the Supreme Court in October 2002 when the case Eldred v. Ashcroft is, you know, the, the night before. Uh, oral arguments are going to be heard in the Supreme Court. Now, Eric Eldred, much like Michael Hart, was this guy who had devoted himself towards putting uh, public domain texts online. And once the Copyright Term Extension Act passed, um, he joined forces with Lawrence Lessig to try to challenge this law as unconstitutional. Uh, and the case worked its way to uh, the Supreme Court. And when it got there, a bunch of public domain enthusiasts from around the country congregated in Washington to go to uh, oral arguments. And uh, Aaron Swartz was one of them. And he was, I think, 14 or 15 years old at the time. And uh, that's sort of where his story begins in the book. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it was, it was great context. And, you know, we've certainly written about the Eldred case many times and it's sort of a, a really interesting story but but you know Swartz's story starts even before that right I oh mean, sure yeah so he was you know he one of he I guess he sort of you know burst onto the scene as as one of the guys behind RSS the RSS standard um, or at least one flavor one version of, of standard. Yeah. yeah yeah there's there's there were I, so I mean I, I'll just say you know personally the, the sort of the first time I ever came across Aaron was because there were fights there were two different sort of two different uh, I would say popular flavors of, of yeah. RSS and he was involved in one and um, you know, with, with some other folks and some other people who were involved in the other and they did not get along. I think it would be the, um, no, no, they didn't get along at all. And, yeah. um, like I think Dave Weiner was one of the guys who was on the other sort yeah. of like uh, the other standard and these really sort of like comical in retrospect, like uh, Flame Wars, like yes. uh, on all these little listservs where, you know, Aaron at like age like 13 in his parents' house in like suburban Chicago is, you know, trying to sort of lay down the law to all of these sort of like established sort of computer programmers about, um, you know, notions of information freedom and uh, the specifics of um, 
sort of the RSS-like standard, <laughs> there's this great sort of like message where Dave Weiner's like, I'm tired of being flamed. Right. Sorry, Aaron. I know you're a kid, but I'm not going to stand for being insulted like anymore. Um, and it's really funny. And it's super interesting because um, Aaron sort of like appeared on the scene almost fully formed, yeah. right? <laughs> the same sort of like uh, confidence in his own sort of opinion that takes so many of us like decades and decades <laughs> to like put together, right? He had like even in his like early like teenage years and the sort of moral clarity about um the the stuff that he was interested in. Um and it rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, uh, but it rubbed a lot of people the right way, like too. And um that's sort of when he started getting involved with Creative Commons and all the other great stuff he did before he had graduated high school. Yeah, yeah, which is really incredible. And, and you know, to be honest, and you don't necessarily go into this as much in the book, but, um, you know, there is this thread that, that runs through, um, you know, much of Aaron's life and, and people who, you know, worked with him or, or dealt with him um, over and over again in that, you know, I think almost everyone agrees that he was just, you know, absolutely brilliant and, and clearly very, very principled, um, but also sometimes difficult to work with. Yes, very <laughs> um, much so. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and represented challenges. And in fact, you know, many of the people um, today, you know, when you talk to them, they will tell you experiences, or at least I've heard, uh, you know, people talk about how, you know, effectively, um, you know, getting yelled at by Aaron, which isn't, you know, he would challenge people, right? He would challenge people if he didn't feel that they were living up to, um, you know, a, a, to some extent what they could be. Um, yeah. And that that is not always the most pleasant thing to go through for a variety of reasons. Um, and but also, you know, certainly help people strive to go much further. And, um, you know, I know that that Lessig in particular you know, credits Aaron effectively challenging him for really broadening his own view, you know, from just focusing on copyright to moving on to the wider issue of corruption under the, the belief uh, in part that, you know, you couldn't just fix the copyright system unless you fix the underlying problem, which was the corruption that, that led to it being the way that it is. Yeah, um, it was at a conference at in Berlin, I believe, when, uh, I forget the year, um, somewhere between, like, 2006, 2007, or whatever, where, like, apparently, like, like Aaron, like, talked to us, and it's like, listen, like, <laughs> like, the struggle, like, so to speak, like, is broader than just focusing on these sort of, like, copyright, like, issues, and apparently, Leslie was like, yep, you're right, <laughs> and I'm gonna switch focus right now. <laughs> yeah, which, you know, which is kind of incredible. I mean, I remember when, when, uh, you know, when Larry announced that and everyone's like, what? what? Because he was yeah. so closely associated with, you know, with the copyright issue. And he basically said, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm, Hey, he sort of framed it in a way as like, I'm sort of dropping copyright to focus on corruption. And everyone's like, wait, what? And of course, I mean, <laughs> he's still sort of, you know, even to this day has still focused somewhat on, on copyright related issues, but, you know, obviously has a much broader overall focus now. And it's interesting that, you know, Aaron at whatever age he was at, at that point, um, you know, which was still quite young, you know, able yeah. to, to effectively get, you know, uh, uh, and I don't know where Larry was at the time. He was, I think he was at Harvard by the back at Harvard at that point. I uh, think, you know, he, he was at Stanford, Stanford at the time still? because that's when he was, had that brief period where he wanted to run for Congress. Right. Um, right. Out here. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 and he where he he would have been my congressman if he had run and yeah. won, but um, 
and and uh that's right that's that's correct and so he was out here but you know and so aaron was was still you know still a child <laughs> you're like yeah. you know he he's you know able to influence a a, a famous and well-respected um you know stanford law professor yeah, it, it, it was like there are so many times when I was sort of writing the book and researching the book where I sort of did a double take when I realized how young Aaron was yeah. when he was doing these things. And I stopped and looked back at where I was at that stage. <laughs> in my life. Yeah. I'm like, yep, drunk, right, drunk right. sleeping, drunk. Yeah. Know? Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's yeah, fairly it's nuts. Yeah. Fairly sobering, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and so you know and then so so he did he did the RSS he did all this stuff he he helped uh, put together Creative Commons which was obviously a big deal and then after all that he uh, and and we sort of neglected to mention that he he sort of um, couldn't handle high school or just you know did not react well to high school and ended up being homeschooled effectively um, but then decided to go to Stanford right. Um, and so, you know, tried to sort of rejoin the traditional academic world in the belief that Stanford would be at a higher level than his uh, disappointment with, with high school. Um, and so, I mean, you know, having already accomplished all this stuff to then, you know, effectively start, you know, as a freshman in college, um, which he then blogged about. Um, yeah, quite. He blogged at great length about yeah. his uh, freshman year, like in in college and his blog sort of drew like a considerable audience um and it's funny going through and reading like them now when you know how his life sort of like turned out and that he left stanford after his first year but like this was a guy who even from like the third day in college <laughs> it was pretty clear he knew he had made a mistake yeah. right he was just sort of biding his time until um a better opportunity sort of presented itself and when Paul Graham in 2005 announced what would eventually become sort of Y Combinator, it was called the Summer Founders Program at that moment. And he was, you know, soliciting uh, business ideas from, you know, understimulated uh, young geniuses around the world. Aaron was like, well, that sounds like me. Uh, so he, you know, proposed his um, company and he went to Cambridge uh, for the summer, and he never went back to uh, Stanford. And eventually, his company, Infogami, uh, didn't you know immediately pan out. So um, Paul Graham was like, "Hey, why don't you merge with this other struggling sort of like startup and form this bigger company that you can all sort of work towards?" And that other company was called Reddit. Yeah. Um, and for about a year after that merger. Um, you know, Alexis Ohanian, Steve Huffman, and Aaron were, you know, basically working to launch Reddit uh, together. And um, eventually, it, like, it was not a happy partnership. Um, Aaron was... <laughs> that's that's a very it, diplomatic way of putting yeah. it. <laughs> uh, and I get into this in the, in, in yeah. the book. Uh, but, you know, eventually, you know, Condé Nast Digital buys... Um, Reddit, and um, they all move out to San Francisco, and uh, Aaron hates it from yeah. day one. I mean, he, he he had hated Reddit for a very long time before it was like bought, but uh, when he goes out um, west, all of his problems with you know the company and sort of um, the 
organizational life of a corporation is get thrown into starker sort of like relief. And he eventually he effectively engineers his own sort of uh, dismissal from Reddit, right? He right. stops like going into the office, like he does very little work. Um, he blogs about his, at his first day at work, uh, he ends up at lunchtime crying in the bathroom because he hates it so much. Um, and sort of eventually he writes this story that he posts on his own blog um, about uh, the main character named Aaron who kills himself. Yeah. Right. It's this sort of very sort of like somber story about um, you know, how Aaron, you know, walks around his apartment in a daze. He's trying to starve himself. Um, and eventually after sort of, Everyone who reads it is like, dude, are you okay? Like, he's like, no, it was just a story. Uh, <laughs> I don't, don't see why you interpreted this as like, like uh, a cry for help. <laughs> right. But uh, right, <laughs> everyone did, and of like, the, yeah, his Reddit uh, colleague sent the cops to his apartment to sort of check on him and make sure he was okay. And there's really no going back, like, to a you know functional office relationship after something like that. So. He left Reddit by mutual consent and basically spent the rest of his life saying, all right, I've got some money now. I've had a taste of the startup lifestyle. I did not like it. I'm going to spend the rest <laughs> of my life doing what I want, trying to change the world the way I think it should be changed. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and, and then worked on a whole bunch of um, different projects and kind of jumped from, from thing to thing. But the one I, I want to cover before we get to the um, – the thing that he got arrested for is is the the situation with Pacer, um, yeah. Which you know it, it was sort of is a, a preview <laughs> into what happens later, I think, to, to some extent. Um, so you want to describe that real quick? Sure. So Pacer is this gigantic sort of database of federal court records. Um, it's got pretty much uh, every sort of. It's, I don't know whether it's like exhaustively complete, but it, it basically is. Right? It, it's of, of, of the of the federal of, of uh, the district and and most of the appeals court stuff, it is basically every filing that is not under seal. Yeah, uh, is is available. If if there's a case in federal court, state courts are different. But um, if there's a case in federal court, any you know um, document that is filed um, goes through is is stored in in this one system which is which is kind of neat as a concept <laughs> yeah it, 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 it's a great concept and that needs to be said like the federal government has been dragged kicking and screaming to putting its like material online so the yeah. fact that this database even exists like you have to applaud that it's there but these are public documents right yes. and pacer charges 10 cents per page Yes. If you want want to access them, and um, and, and that in includes, by the way, I should know because it's important. Searches. It's not just the documents that you download. Yeah, every, that's right. Every search, that, which <laughs> they they try and estimate what a page is on a on a on a web. So if you if you search and there are a lot of results, you pay for a lot of results, <laughs> which is kind yeah, of crazy. It, it's really sort of crazy. Um, and you get all right. They want to cover the costs of the database, but. The costs have been covered, you yeah. know, like the costs have been covered. And back in like 2007, um, Carl Malamud, uh, who I'm sure your sort of uh, listeners are familiar with, he's this sort of seminal um, sort of public data activist, really fascinating guy, yeah. um, identified this loophole. Uh, the uh, U.S. courts had established this sort of um, 
trial program where if you went to one of 16 federal depository libraries across the United States and uh, logged into one of the computers there, you could access Pacer for free and download as much as you wanted for free. So Melamed puts a call out on his website for people to join what he dubbed a thumb drive core to go to these, you know, far-flung libraries, stick a thumb drive in these computers, download as much of Pacer as they could get, and upload it to Melamed's own website, resource.org. Um, and Aaron sort of heeds this call, and um, he reaches out to Melamed, who they, you know, they knew each other. And he was like, great, I'm in. Like, I want to like, join like the core. Um, but Aaron didn't want to sit at uh, a library for, you know, like... <laughs> 15 hours a day and sit or download stuff. So he came up with a shortcut, basically. There was this program uh, that he and a Princeton professor had, you know, put together, um, sort of a remote downloading program, basically. And um, he had a friend go to this law library in Sacramento um, and basically uh, just grab an authentication cookie from one of those computers that tricked uh, the system into thinking that Aaron was sitting in Sacramento downloading all this stuff. And once he had that, he was able to um, sort of run his scraper from Massachusetts and, you know, start automatically downloading uh, Pacer. And he had downloaded about 20 million uh, pages worth of material before the U.S. courts are like, wait a second, something's (laughs) happening. (laughs) There's probably not a guy sitting like in this (laughs) Right. Uh, so they cut off his access, and then they suspended the trial program entirely, and then the FBI got involved. Yeah. The, the FBI was like, "Well, we don't know what uh, Aaron and Carl were doing here, but like, it seems suspicious. Uh, so we're going to um, investigate." So they sent a car out to sort of uh, on a surveillance mission at Aaron's parents' house in Illinois. They put together an FBI file on, uh, on Aaron. Um, they sort of called him up and tried to convince him to come in and meet with them so that he could tell them about what he had done. And Aaron's lawyer was, great, he'll come in and meet with you if you can guarantee like that nothing bad will come of it. Right. And they're like, well, we are not ready to make that guarantee. So they never met. Huh. And they eventually dropped, uh, they eventually closed the case, uh, the FBI had. But what this was, right, it was like very much like an indication. It should have been a warning light, right? That like, even though what you're doing, if what you're doing might not technically be illegal. And as far as like Aaron and Carl knew, and as far as I knew, there was nothing technically illegal about what they had done, right? right? You know, there was nothing in the... Um, uh, terms of service that prevented people from uh, running these uh, r- remote access. Like, but that didn't matter. In terms of like the uh, people like in power, like if they saw something that was amiss, right, that they would automatically frame it as like something that was amiss, probably a crime. And yeah. like that frame would come to dictate like uh, their entire sort of conception of the case and that's what happened with pacer and eventually that's what happened with jstor yeah so let's so let's let's explain the jstor situation I, I think you know probably a bunch of our listeners know the basics but if you want to give kind of a summary of of what happened and how that came sure. about uh so briefly um i'll explain what jstor is like jstor is this uh it's an a uh, non-profit sort of online archive of academic journal um academic journal backfiles right it was this really sort of like 
tremendous sort of like project when it came together in like the 90s, the first real effort uh, for all of these, you know, disparate academic journals to entrust uh, this one online digital repository with maintaining their archives and making their stuff available online. Uh, but in order to gain the trust of these uh, journal publishers um, and to um, sort of convince the journal publishers that their material would not be sort of misused, like JSTOR, the organization, basically had to put together all, like, had to, like, Send out all of these sort of assurances that, like, listen, like, nothing bad is going to come of this content. <laughs> like, like, it's not going to be de devalued. Don't worry, we'll take good care of it. Um, and so, what you have now is this great archive. You know, it's like the uh, digital library incarnate, right? But yep. it costs like like tens of thousands of dollars, like a year, for um, you know universities like to access. And so, pretty much only universities and colleges like have them because it's such an expensive resource. Um, the thing about JSTOR is that so much of the material inside of it is um, belongs to the public domain, right? Yep. A, a, a lot of it is public domain, sort of like material. But you know, because of the sort of uh, contractual tapestry that sort of uh, sort of uh, controls it. Um, even the public domain material back when Aaron was going into it, like, was inaccessible. So, what Aaron did in 2010 is he was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts at the time. Um, he went to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he was not directly affiliated, um, and he opened up a laptop and. He ran a program much like the sort of Pacer program, where he was trying to download as much of the JSTOR archive as sort of possible. Well, these um, opening all of these download sessions like rapidly, you know, hundreds and thousands like per minute. And JSTOR uh, caught him and kicked him off. He started again. They kicked him off again. This sort of game of cat and mouse happened like throughout sort of September and October. Finally, uh, they thought that Aaron had gone away. And they thought the problem would like stop. What had happened? He has refined his tactics, mm -hmm. and he had found like a um, this telephony closet in the basement of Building 16 at MIT, and he had hardwired his computer into this sort of like system there, and he was um, still downloading as much as he had been, you know, before, but at a rate that was not as easily sort of detected. And this computer sort of like ran like for months until right around Christmas 2010, uh, JSTOR realizes that this uh, hacker, and like they definitely thought it was like an overseas hacker who had planned to um, siphon their archives and like sell them like in China. That's uh, Honestly, that's what they thought. They right. thought were Chinese hackers. Um so they call MIT, they're like, you guys have to stop this. You gotta find this guy. Um so they found him and MIT police got involved and the uh Secret Service and the Cambridge Police Department sort of got involved through an odd twist of fate. Um the uh MIT police officer who was leading the investigation into these downloads just happened to sit on this joint uh, cybercrime task force that will ha involve, you know, cops and law enforcement uh, throughout New England from various um, uh, departments. So he called in his buddies from this task force to help him uh, put, like, the case together. And what happened is when they had sort of, like, found this computer and were waiting to identify its owner, um, the Secret Service agent, Michael Pickett, uh, 
uh, on his own, reaches out to the U.S. Attorney's Office and says, you guys should know about this, right? Mm -hmm. Something is happening here. Um, let's keep in touch because when we catch him, we should probably like prosecute him. So really like there was really no reason for like the U S attorney's office to get involved in this prosecution at all. And like, if like, like the secret service agent just hadn't answered his phone that one day, they probably, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> it's really nuts. But anyway, like they caught him. Like they arrested like Aaron, uh, they found that he had downloaded about 4.7 million JSTOR documents. And then the U.S. Attorney's Office gets involved. And um, they return an indictment against him in July 2011 with sort of like four, uh, you know, federal felony counts. Uh, they're carrying a maximum of 35 years in prison. And then um, sort of the next year, they return a superseding indictment that expands that from four felony counts to 11 or 13 or something like that. Like in any way, the uh, basically doubling down, right? So like yep. instead of like 35 maximum years, it's now 95 maximum years. Instead of $1 million maximum in fines, it's like $3 million plus. Um, and uh, throughout this entire uh, process, Aaron and his advocates are like, wait, we did nothing wrong. Like, right. like it might have been sort of, we might have been too hasty in like getting this stuff. And yeah, we probably should have asked permission. But like, this was not malicious. No one was really hurt uh, by this. And yet, you are threatening to like send me to prison, like basically for life. Now, granted, like Aaron was never going to prison for thirty-five or ninety-five sure. like years. But like as you like well know right the whole reason why they have these like absurd maximums is to sort of try to convince uh defendants to take a plea bargain yep. because you never know right? yeah uh, you never know and aaron like was like no i'm not going to take a plea bargain i didn't do anything wrong i don't think i should go to prison uh and that just made the u.s attorneys more like sort of upset and that was basically the um a dynamic um, until um, 2013, where the case reached its tragic yeah. conclusion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, it, it's important just sort of the the framing and sort of the viewpoint from both sides, which is, you know, from from Aaron's side, which I'm obviously extremely sympathetic to, was you know, MIT had the you know they had a JSTOR account which allowed anyone on campus you know, guest or affiliated with MIT, anyone to access JSTOR and, yeah. you know, for free and to download articles. Um, and so, you know, from that perspective, he was doing exactly what the system allowed, which is sort of, you know, it's a technologist's point of view. If the system allows it, it's allowed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and again, it's academic research. This was not, you know, movies or music or anything like that right and, and again you're as you mentioned a lot of it public domain information yeah. whereas you know the, the the prosecutors the u.s attorney's office just kept going back to well it's stealing it's stealing they were stealing and it's the same framing um you know some of which sort of came out last week where this idea of like making a copy is is this horrible evil thing that will destroy society and culture as we know it and and the the you know there was no overlap between there was no venn diagram where they right. they saw anything eye to eye um in these discussions which was you know frankly somewhat frightening um 
you know, from from the side that that, that doesn't think that he was really doing anything wrong. And, and and like this is like why I take so much time in the book to set up like the context, right? Like the sort of understanding where these attitudes came from yeah. is key to sort of understanding why the people professing these attitudes were and continue to be so sort of inflexible, right? It becomes so ingrained. Stealing is stealing. Stealing is wrong. Property is property. And there's no shades of gray in that sort of mentality. But that, like the situation is nothing but shades of gray. Right, right. Like like there's, it's completely different uh, for, you know, downloading like 4.7 million like movies right right versus like downloading 4.7 million academic journal articles that were written by academics who never had any sort of um intention of profiting from their work right much of the research was underwritten by public uh public dollars right federal yep. research like funding this is material that by all rights ought to belong to the public they are not there is they are not removing any incentive to sort of like create uh, academic right. research by 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 grabbing this stuff. Right. right? Yes, <laughs> I, I would imagine that yeah. there's yeah there's been no shift in in academic yeah. research due to this this you know material which which I mean Aaron eventually had to destroy all the stuff that that he had downloaded. But um, yeah, it's it's quite crazy. I um I, I know that there's a there's a lot more in in the book, but I also know that you have to go. <laughs> yeah, I gotta I gotta hop in a plane. Um, um, but but just just to conclude, I mean, first first, thank you very much. It was really interesting. Um, and and to to people who've been listening to this and to last week's episode, and and think you don't need to read the book, I don't think that's true. <laughs> there's a lot more in the book. Um, there, there's and it is really wonderfully written, and there's tons of detail and 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 you know a ton of research clearly went into this book, and it's really well written and engaging. And I, I thought it was fantastic. Um, but but just you know to take it a step back as a final question to kind of close out you know in doing all of this research and writing this book i mean do you think that your you know how you thought about these issues or or your attitude towards copyright and and open access and things like that did it shift at all did it change do you think it reinforced what you believed or, or how did you come out um, of it? it 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 definitely um shifted uh my perspective um so i came at this story like when i was first looking into Aaron's sort of like life back in 2013, I was just coming off of five years of working at the Columbia Journalism Review, right? I had worked there during the time where the media industry was falling apart and sort of every month it, it felt like a new newspaper was, you know, closing, uh, magazines were shuttering, like it was becoming more and more difficult for uh, sort of news content providers to actually uh, you know, earn a profit and like actually pay for the sort of production like of news and sort of our institutional stance during this time was basically build a wall right. after the pirates, right? Um, and I, you know, that couldn't help but sort of like affect like my own thinking when I was going into this. So as much, I, I was basically inclined to be like, you know, Aaron Swartz, criminal, you know, like when right. I started like writing, like, like writing about his life. And, you know, the more I sort of learned about um, not just him, but his predecessors and the sort of, you know, historical, you know, where, where the laws that he had, you know, pur- purportedly violated, like, came from, the more I realized is it's not that simple. Yeah. It's never that simple, right? You know, that it's <laughs> it's not just a matter of 
listen, let's, you know, you know, send pirates to jail as they wanted to do in the 1890s, you know, <laughs> right? It didn't work back then. It's not going to work now. You can't put this stuff back in the box. Yeah. It's out there. There's this part in um, chapter five, I believe, where I quote uh, Gene Tan, the guy who was the, yeah. or one of the developers of uh, Nutella. Um, and he is in this hearing with Lars Ulrich from sort of Metallica, one of the first hearings uh, Congress had had about uh, sort of downloading like music. And, you know, Lars Ulrich is like, you know what? What's clear here is like all this vaunted new um, dist distribution technology. It's just good old fashioned like shoplifting. And Gene's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Listen, uh, right. <laughs> that's like, listen, you can't stop this stuff, right? Like you can only adapt. You can yeah. find new ways to sort of like, like bring your uh, material to like the people. The stalwarts like are always like going to lose here. Oh, uh, if you give me one second, I will find the quote because I think it's worth. Uh, <laughs> sure, it's, as a closing quote. quote, sounds good. As a closing quote, yeah. Son of a gun, where is this thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here, here's what he said: Like, can we stem the tide of new technologies? Highly unlikely. So, what does the future hold? Great things if profiteers adapt, if intellectual property profiteers adapt. Technology moves forward and leaves the stragglers behind. The adapters always win, and the stalwarts always lose. Yeah, that's great. That's, uh, I mean, that, that, to some extent, I think that's sort of been the, the motto and theme of TechDirt for, for as long as we've been around. So um, that's great because I, I actually had not seen that quote before before seeing it in the book. And it is a, re a really, really good one. And I think sums up a lot of a lot of this discussion. Um, yeah. So th thank you again. It was a really, really great discussion. I'm, I'm so glad that, that you were able to make time and, and to join us. And I hope that everyone listening enjoyed it. And so so thank you, Justin. Um, again, the book is called The Idealists. I hope that, that people go out and check it out. We'll have a link on our website. Um, and, uh, and we'll be back again next week with, a, with another podcast. But um, Justin, thanks for, for joining us. This was a really great discussion. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. <laughs>